the book of Joshua chapter 3 this morning for our study. I'll begin with verse 1. I'm going to jump right in. We've got some things to understand even before. We're going to read through this chapter and then consider some things and then come back to the chapter again to understand and see how this all functions, how this all works together. Verse 1, Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and there they lodged before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went throughout the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be a distance between you of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went ahead of the people. Now the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he assuredly dispossesses from before you the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Hivite, and the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. It shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan, with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan, and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarephan. And those which were flowing around or down toward the Sea of the Arab of the Salt Sea were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Faith. Faith is taking possession of the promises of God. That's a great definition for faith. It's what the entire book of Joshua is about. Taking possession of the promises of God. God's already laid the promises out. The question is whether or not we will take possession of them. And Paul writes in Philippians 3.12, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus already laid hold of me. Now I press on to lay hold of Him. 
He's already given me the promises. Now I press on to possess the promises. It's all about faith. But the truth is, and you know this as well as I do, my faith needs a little help. Now I can sit there and get roused up in worship or during a sermon or a teaching, but when I'm on my own, my faith needs help. I often go back to that scene, Mark chapter 9, that story of the, of the man who brought his son, his demon-possessed son, to the apostles and asked them, could you heal him? Could you drive the demon out from him? And the apostles, we don't even know what all they did, but it didn't work. We know they tried to pray over him, they tried to cast out the demon to no avail. And so an argument arose among the Father and the apostles and some of the people around as to what was going on. And Jesus came upon this scene. Jesus says, what's happening here, you guys? And, and, the, and the father says, I brought my son. He, he falls into the fire and he falls into the water and he has no control and he's possessed. I, I brought him to your followers and they couldn't drive anything out. They couldn't heal him. And the father said, man, if it's possible, would you please, please drive this demon out? And Jesus replied, Mark 9, 23, if, if it's possible... All things are possible to him who believes. And the man cried out what I believe is the consummate prayer for anyone who would follow after Jesus. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Oh Lord, help my unbelief. I want to develop a faith that takes possession of the promises. Help my unbelief. I want to go forward in my life with Jesus. Help my unbelief. I want His Spirit to empower me to function the way I was created to function. Help my unbelief, Lord. The question is, how do I develop a faith that takes possession? How do I grow that kind of a faith? Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Keep your finger in Joshua 3. We'll be back there. Acts chapter 2 and verse 14. Acts 2.14 It's that great day, that day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. The Jews are gathered together in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, that's the Greek name for it. And as they gather there, you know the story, a strong wind comes upon the place where the apostles are gathered together. And they begin speaking. And as they speak, everyone gathered there hears what they're saying in their own language. People gathered from all over the place. And they're amazed, although there are a few that thought maybe these guys were just drunk. But it tells us, in verse 14, Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. <laughs> give us some time. Verse 16, But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Verse 17, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Why do we go to Acts chapter 2 all the way from Joshua 3? Because here's the key. The absolute key to developing our faith is our openness to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
Our openness to the work of the Holy Spirit will determine the degree to which we can take hold of the promises of God. The more open we are to the Spirit, the more of the promises we can take hold of. The more closed off we are to the Spirit, the less promises we're going to be able to receive because truly our faith is not our own. Help my unbelief is the prayer. I believe in my humanity, in my fallenness, but God, I need you to help my unbelief. I need the faith that only you can give me, only your Spirit. Now, I've said this before, God will take you as far as you are willing to go and not one step further. God is not a pushy God. He's not a bully. He's kind. He doesn't strong arm anyone. He's gentle. And in my own life, He has never forced me to take possession of anything I wasn't ready or prepared to take possession of. He doesn't push. He just says, here are the promises. Here's what I can do. Paul says, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you want it? Do you want to take hold? Do you want to possess it? You don't give a baby a steak dinner. You don't offer a fourth grader an opportunity to sign up for calculus. And you most certainly don't put a ten-year-old behind the wheel of a car. So the Lord will not push you, will not force you, will not take you to a place that you're not ready to go. And He will not take you any further than where you are willing to go. The Lord will always first bring us to the promises without forcing us to take possession of the promises. And it's that way with His Holy Spirit. Why are we talking about His Spirit? A year ago, here at the bridge, just at the tail end of the year, I, I made a promise. I said, hey, after the first of the year, we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about the work of the Spirit. And I kept coming back to it, literally week after week after week, in my own study, the Holy Spirit. Where do we stand in understanding the Holy Spirit? What specifically, doctrinally, is the position here at the Bridge Christian Fellowship of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? And every week I came back to this question and every week I'd look at the passage and go, can we talk about the Holy Spirit here, Lord? No, I guess not. Okay, well, can we, how about here, Lord? No, I guess not. All the way through until I completely forgot about the promise to talk about the Holy Spirit. Well, we're going to get it in this year. Today. Because this week I was stunned to discover that God has a message for us in understanding His Holy Spirit. We're going to have to say a few things here before we even get back into Joshua chapter 3 to know where we're going to kind of chart the course. So I want to invite you to follow along. I do understand that we have many different backgrounds represented here at the bridge. That's the way it is. When you start a church that isn't connected to any one particular denomination, when people can walk into the barn door from anywhere, I know that we're represented here by multiple ideas, traditions, thoughts, backgrounds. I encourage you not to take my word for anything that I say this morning. And I encourage you even more so, don't take your tradition for anything that you believe. This morning I invite you to set it all aside and to simply look at what God's Word has to say about God's Spirit. There are a lot of saved, loving, God-fearing people who never really accept the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Who never really move beyond a certain place in belief. This is not a statement of judgment, it's just a reality. I was raised with a background that you could call cessationist. Cessationist, that is simply a long way of saying cessation, that something ceased. The teaching that I received as a kid was that the work of the Holy Spirit, especially the manifest power, the action of the Holy Spirit in the world today, ceased with the last of the apostles. 
It was needed in the first century to spread the gospel, to get the word out there. But once Paul died, it didn't go beyond that. Because by then we had the word. There are those who will say, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. And they'll say the perfect is the Bible. I believe if you read it in context, the perfect is Jesus Christ, who has not yet come. And so I do believe now that there is much more to the Spirit. In fact, in the last 20 years of my life, especially being in ministry, I have had to come to that place where it is undeniable that God's Spirit is active and at work in the world today. We're just not sure we want Him. Different backgrounds. My own background would be absolutely contrary to some of the things I'm going to share with you this morning. I would have possibly even, as a young teenager, even an early college student, walked out on some of the things that I'm going to share with you this morning. But I invite you and encourage you over this week, if there's anything said that that stirs you up or, or bugs you or you don't agree with, I encourage you to go back to the Word this week. Got all the verses up. Write them down. Study them. Pour over them. I've been doing this for the last year, actually a lot longer than that. But the Bible tells us something, and it should rattle our cages a bit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, Without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then Paul makes this statement, and listen to this, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. Lots of saved, loving, God-fearing people are denying themselves the very power He has given us to help our unbelief. And the question is, are we going to be among those who deny His power? Or are we going to accept and embrace, take possession of one of the greatest promises we've ever been given, and that is the work of the Spirit in our lives. His Holy Spirit active in us, moving through us, working in ways we could not possibly work without Him. Gained by His Word, God has seen fit to teach us about His Spirit. He's given us clear, grounded, biblical instruction as to how to appropriately receive, that is, take possession of, the gifts of His Holy Spirit. Now, comparing ourselves to Israel, as far as Israel was concerned, their possession was across the Jordan. It was on the other side of that river. And there were Joshua's and there were Caleb's and others among them who were possession takers, those who wanted to go as far as the Lord would take them. And we'll see, we've mentioned Caleb before, we'll see him coming up again. Here's a man who at 85 still wanted to fight the giants. He's still wanting to see what the Lord will do in his life. Wanting to take possession of the promises. But there were also those who were a part of Israel, a part of the fellowship of the Israelites, that were content never to cross the Jordan, never to take possession of that part of the land, happy and content just to stay where they were. The Reubenites. The Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, were a content people to stay on the east side of the Jordan. There's a picture there, gang, because within Christianity there are those who will never cross the Jordan until Jesus comes. They'll never take possession of the promises of the Spirit who has been offered to them. They're saved, happy and content to be such, but not to go any further. Because that's a little bit too strange. Yet there are those 
who will take possession of the land because and listen to this the real fruit the real fruit is on the other side of the Jordan River you've got to step into the river to get to the fruit of the land and if your spiritual drive life seems dry and fruitless I believe the Lord this morning would invite you to step into the river just like Israel would step into the river to listen to a second baptism a second baptism what do you mean by that? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Don't miss this parallel, for if you miss it, you're going to skip right over like a rock on a pond. You're going to skip right over the message of Joshua chapter 3. Paul says when the people went through the Red Sea, he says that's like our baptism. They went through the sea. They went through the parted waters in the same way. You, you Christians, you, you've been baptized. That's your first baptism. Just like Israel passing through the waters. Paul makes that comparison. In fact, you might want to jot a couple things down. The crossing of the Red Sea in biblical type is a picture of baptism. Water baptism. Immersion. By the way, here at the bridge, just as a side note, we immerse. Even in cold weather. So if you want to be immersed, the pond is waiting for you today. We immerse because that's the way it was done. Not because of any tradition or any bias, but because the word baptism, baptizo, means to immerse, to submerge. It doesn't mean sprinkle. It doesn't mean to splash. There's another Greek word for sprinkle, rantizo. It's not the one used throughout the New Testament. It's baptizo, to submerge. And so we go into the pond and go completely under. I don't. I already did when I was younger. But you do. And the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture of that. Paul says they were baptized into Moses in the sea. But now, now the children of Israel have traveled a ways. They've had that first baptism, that experience with Moses in the sea. And now they come up to another expanse of water. Not a sea, mind you, but a river. A river that's moving and flowing and rushing and alive. John 7.37, Jesus said, Hey, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. And so in the same way that the crossing of the Red Sea is a picture in biblical type of baptism... Water baptism, when you come to faith in Jesus, the Jordan River, number two, is a powerful picture of a second baptism. Another baptism. When a person comes to faith in the Lord, baptism is always the first act of obedience. It's called that. Now there there are many I've seen over the years who came to faith in Jesus, put their trust in Him, but were never baptized. And they come across this and they begin to discover, wow, God wants me to do this. He wants me to pass through the Red Sea. And so they will get baptized. But there's a second, a second picture here. For with baptism, and I'm talking about your first baptism, your water baptism, if you've, if you've gone into the water and been baptized, with that baptism comes a promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Peter says in Acts 2.38, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So Rick, are you saying that the only way I can receive the indwelling Holy Spirit is to get baptized? No, I'm saying that you're guaranteed to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit when you're baptized. 
God also gave the indwelling of His Spirit at other times. It didn't necessarily have to be through baptism, but Peter's saying, hey, if you get baptized, I promise you here's what's going to happen. You're going to receive the indwelling of His Spirit. It's a guarantee. However, the Bible speaks clearly of a second baptism. You may have heard the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you may be bothered by that phrase as I was for years. Like the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the only baptism I read about in the Bible is water baptism by immersion. The baptism of the Holy Spirit just happens, it's concurrent, it's the same thing. I don't think it is anymore. If that phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit, by the way, bothers you, I didn't coin it. Neither neither did the uh, Pentecostal movement of the early 1900s. So the phrase was coined by someone else. Our Lord Jesus was the first to say it. Acts chapter 1 verse 5. John baptized with water, Jesus said, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria even to the remotest part of the earth. And some will argue that this verse when Jesus says you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit they will argue that when Peter and the boys received the Holy Spirit it's just like we do in baptism. The first baptism. It's the one and the same thing. But that can't be the case. Why not? Watch this. Weeks before that John chapter 20 tells us something very interesting. Literally on Resurrection Sunday. John chapter 20 verse 22. Jesus gathers together there with the apostles. And it tells us in scripture very specifically. By the way nothing is random in the Bible. It tells us he breathed on them and said receive the Holy Spirit. And later he says, hey, not many days from now you're going to receive, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Two different things here. Resurrection Sunday, he breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. And then later, right before he ascends, by the way, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute, didn't we just receive the Holy Spirit? What happened, Lord? Did it just not take? Did you breathe on us and and some of us missed it and so we need to have this, this second experience? Or is it possible that when the apostles were filled with the presence of the Spirit, that was when Jesus breathed on them. They received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But, 50 days later at Pentecost, they were filled not just with the presence of the Spirit, but with the power of the Spirit. Two different things. The presence of the indwelling Spirit in your life. You come to faith in Jesus. You're you're baptized. You receive that indwelling of His Holy Spirit. He's with you. It's a seal of salvation, the Bible tells us. But there's more. For those who want to take possession, there's more. There's the presence. There is also the power. Jesus spoke actually of three ways the Spirit affects or impacts our life. Three ways. You might want to jot these down. And there are three specific Greek words that are different words applied to the way the Spirit works in your life. Number one, Jesus says the Spirit will be with you. With you. The word is para in the Greek. He'll be with you to come alongside of you. John chapter 14 verse 16 Jesus says I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not know Him or see Him but you know Him because He abides with you. He's with you. Para. But Jesus also says and He will be in you. In you. That's the second way the Spirit works. Jesus says, number two, the Spirit will be in you. And the Greek word is in. <laughs> E-N, if you're transliterating there. And it literally means to indwell. So the Holy Spirit, on the one hand, will come alongside. 
And he will also indwell. Those are two different things. Those who have never given their lives to Christ Jesus still can have the Holy Spirit impact their lives. Someone who's not a Christian, the Holy Spirit can come alongside of them and do what? Convict them of their sin. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus said He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's part of the role of the Spirit. Part of the power of the Spirit working through the church today is the convicting of the world around us of the sin that people are living in. He comes alongside of, He is with people trying to bring them to salvation. But once someone comes to salvation, He is in you. He indwells that person. And this is what Peter said would accompany water baptism in Acts 2.38 saying, Be baptized baptized and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, that's not the only way that you receive the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. But it's one way that's guaranteed. This is also what we just read happen to the apostles when Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. At that moment, the Spirit indwelled the apostles, but they still didn't have the power. How do you know? Because there's a radical difference between Peter for those first 50 days and Peter on the day of Pentecost. There's a radical difference with all of the apostles. Suddenly, they became lunatics for Jesus. Suddenly, their lives were completely overrun by one desire, and that was the preaching of the name of Jesus Christ. They became radicals. Prior to that, yeah, they were filled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but they weren't doing a whole lot. They were gathering in upper rooms, kind of hiding out, praying together. About 150 people. And yet on that day, Pentecost, 150 became 3,000. Big difference. Jesus says the Spirit will be with you. He indicates the Spirit will be in you. But in you means it's presence, but not necessarily power. Presence, but not power. Jesus says again in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, number three, upon you. Jesus says, thirdly, He says, first, the Spirit will be with you. He says, second, the Spirit will be in you. And then he uses the Greek word epi, the Spirit would come upon you. And upon is connected to another Greek word you need to know, dunamis, which is power. That's when the power is applied. When the Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, when you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I, for one, don't want to be a part of a group of people who hold to a form of godliness but deny the power. Don't you want the power? For years I struggled with that. Then I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe in all this stuff, but I'm not living it. I can't seem to change a thing in my life. I can't seem to impact anybody. I remember the first sermon that I preached. Cheryl, you remember that. No power. No power. It's pretty pathetic. The power was missing. And I wondered, what's going on? Why why is it that I can't seem to change in lifestyle? Why is it that I can't seem to make a difference in other people's lives? I have the spirit. I knew I did. I had the faith, weak as it was. But I didn't have the power. For the power, the Spirit, Jesus says, will come upon you. Now you may say, I don't want to be one of those weirded out nutcases who barks and clucks and dances and sticks to the floor. I'm a little worried when you start talking about the power of the Holy Spirit because I'm afraid it means I'm going to start doing weird stuff uncontrollably. Not the case. As a matter of fact, and this verse isn't up there, but in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. In other words, you don't lose control. You don't go... 
and then off you go, not even knowing what you did, waking up three hours later going, wow, what just happened? That was bizarre. I just kind of went into a trance. It's not the Holy Spirit that we read about in Scripture. And I can give you some peace about this if you're wondering, if you're concerned. Listen closely. Three more things to consider here. The form, the fruit, and the function of the Holy Spirit. Now consider this carefully with me. This has been processed in my head all year long. And in prayer, the form, the fruit, and the function of the Holy Spirit. First of all, the form. Would you agree that Jesus Christ was the most Spirit-filled man ever to walk the face of planet Earth? If Jesus is the most Spirit-filled man, then don't you think we can look at Jesus and see what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? There's your example. What does a Spirit-filled person look like? He looks like, she looks like Jesus Christ. The form. The Spirit-filled person will look and act like Jesus. The Spirit-filled person will think about the things that Jesus thinks about. Will be concerned with the things Jesus was concerned with. Will live and act in a way that Jesus would live and act. That is the picture of the Spirit-filled person. For not only was the Spirit with Jesus and in Jesus, but the Spirit also came upon Jesus in powerful and miraculous ways. Now I know that's a little bit strange to think. Wait, wait, wait. You're saying the Spirit came upon Jesus. Fell upon Jesus. Yes, He did. We talked about this Wednesday night a couple of weeks back. At Jesus' baptism, we're told that the Spirit descended upon Him as a dove. And you might think, oh, that was just, you know, for an example for us. No, I don't think so. Because Paul also told us in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus literally laid aside His godliness, His power, His glory. He laid it aside. He set it aside. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll come back to that in just a minute. But Jesus went on to say in John 14, 12, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, He will do also. Greater works than these will He do because I go to the Father. And so we ask the question, what did Jesus do? How did Jesus act? What do you see in Him? He's the form. He's the model of the Spirit-filled life. But not just the form, the fruit. Consider the fruit. For the Spirit-filled person will evidence the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. That's how you know someone is truly Spirit-filled. What does the fruit look like in their lives? Galatians 5.22 tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now I am not claiming to have all that fruit hanging just nice and ripe on, on the tree that is Rick Crawford. There are times where any manner of these fruits are not functioning the way they should. However, in the life of the Spirit-filled person, these are the things to look for. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And Paul says this, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. And if I am functioning in a way that that shows no self-control, if I'm acting without patience, without gentleness, if you don't see an evidence of love in my life, then I am choosing the flesh over the Spirit as opposed to the Spirit over the flesh. And my friends, I want to possess the Spirit. I want to take possession of the promise of the Spirit in my life that these fruits might be evidenced in me. 
It's important to understand the fruit. The Spirit-filled person will evidence the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And if if I'm living contrary to this inventory of spiritual fruit, I am holding to a form of godliness while denying its power. Number three, the function. The form is Jesus, the fruit is that of the Spirit, and the function, this is very important, the Spirit of God comes upon a person, empowers a person for this primary reason. Are you ready for this? Witnessing. Witnessing. This is the a priori number one reason why the Holy Spirit will come upon anybody and empower them. It's for witnessing. Jesus says, you shall be my witnesses. My power is going to come upon you. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And when you receive this power, then you're going to hole up in a synagogue or in a church somewhere and you're going to have spirit-filled services and that's all you're going to do but just make sure you keep the door closed because you don't want anybody to know what's going on in there. You know, he says, you're going to receive power to be my witnesses. You're going to have Holy Spirit power to go into the world, to speak the name of Jesus, to evidence the form of Jesus in your life, which, gang, I can't do. If there's any good thing in me, if there's any resemblance to Jesus whatsoever in my life, it's because of the power of the Spirit, not because Rick has figured out how to do it. It's because the Spirit's alive in me, flowing through me, working, functioning for me as a witness. The power of the Spirit gang was never about sensationalism, but it was always about evangelism. Ultimately, the gifts of the Spirit are not even for me. They're for others. They're given to me that I might serve and minister to others. That's the point of the gifts that are given. 1 Corinthians 12.4, Paul says there are varieties of gifts, but there is the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Not for the individual, but for the body, for the fellowship, for the work of God in this world. And Paul goes on to say in verse 11, 1 Corinthians 12, One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. Why is, why is He able to preach the Word and I can't? Because that's His gift. Why is she able to serve in ways that I can't? That's her gift. Why is He able to heal and others can't do it? That's His gift. And that's up to the Spirit. And not any one of us. Now, with those things in mind, and I know I covered that quickly. With those things in mind, go back to Joshua 3. Israel, now on the banks of the Jordan River, ready for their second crossing. The first crossing, the Red Sea, their first baptism. Now they're about to take a second crossing. A second baptism, if you will. And it pictures exactly what we've been talking about. Watch this. Verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning. He and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan. And they lodged there before they crossed. Jesus, by the way, our Joshua was an early riser. I like this picture of Joshua rising early in the morning because that's what Jesus did. He he rose early. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 4 tells us, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. By the way, this is Messiah talking here. These are the words of Jesus. And he says, He awakens me morning by morning. 
He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Then the Lord God has opened my ear, then I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. This prophetic picture of Jesus and the lifestyle of Jesus, who was an early riser. Mark chapter 1 verse 35 tells us in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and he left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. And that's what Jesus did. So often the apostles would rise to find Jesus missing because he was already up praying with the Lord. Many times praying all night long with the Father, but he was always up early. That was his lifestyle. And by the way, you know that his rising early wasn't just from sleep, but it was also from death, that he rose early on that morning of the resurrection. Now I mention that just to encourage you to seek the Lord in the morning before the day begins. Start before your feet even hit the floor. Pray that the Spirit would empower you that day for that day's work. For what the Lord has prepared for you then. Not the next day, not yesterday, not two weeks from now, but just for today. Lord, walk with me. Lead me, guide me through the hours of this day. So Joshua and Israel, they camped out on the banks of the Jordan waiting to cross over. In the same way Peter... And the apostles, they waited in Jerusalem until they received power. Let me share this. Waiting is not a bad thing. Sometimes I've I've talked with people who have gotten frustrated because they've wanted the Spirit to come upon them. They've prayed for the Spirit to come upon them and haven't sensed anything different about their lives. It's funny because typically when someone's praying for the Spirit to come upon them and change them, there are differences in their life that they're not even aware of. But the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon people in the same way. Every person will not have the same experience of receiving the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. For some, the Spirit will come upon you over a matter of weeks. Others will have an instantaneous experience, a a power experience of the Holy Spirit. But waiting on the Spirit is your key. If you're not sure that you have the power of the Spirit, if you're not sure you've ever had the, the baptism, as Jesus said, of the Holy Spirit in your life, wait for it. Wait for it. Purpose yourself to receive it. Ask. Wait. Israel waits on the banks of the Jordan. They're about to cross over. Peter and the guys waited in Jerusalem until they received that power from on high. Verse 2 says, At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and, I love this, go after it. (laughs) Go get it. Follow it. Go after it. The last phrase of verse 3 is awesome. Man, when you see the ark going, when you see that, that picture of power heading out, chase it down, go after it. That's the direction God's calling you when you see His power at work. But watch how verse 4 tempers the last phrase of verse 3. However, go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. That would be about half a mile. And the Lord says, Don't come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go. For watch this, you have not passed this way before. God's saying, Hey, Israel, you want to cross this river? You want to get to the fruit of the land? Christians, are you looking for the power of my Holy Spirit? Go for it, but don't push me. (laughs) Go after it, but be patient. Don't get too close. God is saying, I'm going to take you somewhere you've never been before. I'm going to show you things you've never seen before. You've got to give me room to take you there. 
One of the mistakes some people will make with the Holy Spirit in their desire to experience the Holy Spirit is to rush headlong ahead of the Lord to do so. To begin to generate emotionally or physically things that are not of the Lord because they want the Spirit so badly. The heart is right. It's the flesh that messes it up. And so rather than than going for it but keeping an eye on what God is doing, people will sometimes go for it and forget about what God is doing to watch the Spirit at work in their lives and it ends up not even being the Spirit, it's the flesh. The Lord says, I want you to go for it, but I want you to wait for me because I'm going to take you places you've never been. I'm going to show you things you've never seen. And so if we're going to do this, let's do it my way. You may remember Nadab and Abihu. They didn't do it in the Lord's way. Back in Leviticus chapter 10, it was inauguration day for the priests and Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, boy, they were excited, pumped up. Aaron comes out in the the regal dress of the high priest. Oh, Dad's looking good and we're up here with Dad and all of Israel. You know, we got millions here watching us, impressed with us. And so here we are. Nadab, grab your fire pan, man. Let's generate some excitement here. And they offered up what the Bible calls strange fire. There's strange fire in the church today. It's not godly fire. It's just strange fire. Offered up, ignited by man rather than by the Spirit. But wise is the man who says, I want to be filled with the outpouring Lord Jesus of your Holy Spirit. But I want to be led by your Spirit, your way, not my way. I want to do whatever it is you want me to do, but I want it to be what you want. And not what I want. I want it about your leading, not my experience. Jesus said in John 3.8, The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear the sound of it. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And the Spirit-filled people or person can boldly say, when asked, what's the Lord doing in your life? I'm not exactly sure, but it's wonderful. What are you going to do next week? I don't know. God will show me. What are you doing today? Not sure. Let's see what the Lord has in mind. For the wind blows wherever it pleases. So it is with someone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 5. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priest saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. And so they took up the Ark of the Covenant and they went ahead of the people. Joshua said, Consecrate yourselves, guys. Get ready, that word consecrate, we've seen it before. It's kadosh in the Hebrew, holy, set aside, prepare yourselves. And that's important to understand because I cannot be filled with God's Spirit when I'm choosing to walk in the flesh. I've got to be consecrated. I've got to be prepared. I cannot be filled with the Spirit when I am full of myself. My desires, my ways, my wants, my oughts. I can't receive of the Spirit and His power. When I am charting my own course in this world. Paul says in Galatians 5.25, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. I mean, live a life that is driven by the Spirit and not myself. And that takes consecration. Man, set yourself apart to the Lord. And prepare yourself for what the Spirit will do. And I love this. What is it that those 120 disciples were doing in the week and a half between Jesus' ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost? What were they doing in those few days when the power had not yet come? Do you know? They were praying. They were waiting, but they were praying. The one thing that they did that wasn't appropriate in my mind was they tried to choose another apostle to replace Judas. 
And they cast lots. They roll the dice. Let's see who it falls on. Matthias. And you never hear of Matthias again. But you do hear of Paul. That was the one area where they kind of got out on their own. But the rest of the time, they were doing what we're called to do. They were praying. And Acts 1.14 tells us, with one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. You don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? You're not sure if you've received that, that baptism of the Holy Spirit? Then I invite you to consecrate yourself through prayer. Start praying. Start focusing your attention on the Lord. And pray and pray and wait and pray. Set aside and prepare yourself for the work of the Spirit. Again, it could take days. It could take weeks. It might be months. For me, it was years. But the Spirit will come. For it is up to the will of the Spirit of the Lord. Before the bridge was begun, many of you know this, I had no idea planning a church was was God's plan for my family. In fact, I was completely opposed to the idea. I had done it once, didn't want to do it again. And so Cheryl and I began to pray. And it was seven months from when we began to pray, seven months, February through August of 2003, until September 2nd, the Lord answered and was ready to move. If you had told me seven months before, you need to start praying for seven months, I would have said, that's kind of a long time. I didn't know what was happening. We didn't know what was going to go on. But it was through consecrating through prayer that we were able to hear the Lord when He was ready to call. Verse 7, the Lord then said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel. Watch this. That they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. It's wonderful. It's the same thing that happened when our Joshua went into the Jordan. When Jesus went into the Jordan, baptized by his cousin John, when he came out, the Spirit descended upon him as a dove. Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3, and John 1. The Spirit came upon him, descended upon him. And by the way, this is interesting. The word Jordan, the name for the Jordan River, it's the Hebrew word Yarden. And Yarden literally means descending one. One who descends. And as Jesus came up out of the waters of the Jordan River, baptized there, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And we're told by Luke in chapter 4, verse 14, that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district. We're told in John chapter 1, verse 32, that John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon Jesus. I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself, John says, have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. By the way, that's interesting because John knew his cousin. John and Jesus were cousins. He would have recognized Jesus. What John is saying when he says, I myself did not recognize him, He said, I did not recognize that my cousin was supposed to be Messiah until the Holy Spirit came upon him. John, the cousin of Jesus, who grew up with Jesus, did not see in Jesus' life something that would make him think that Jesus was Messiah. Well, you're telling me for 30 years of Jesus' life he was ordinary? That's exactly right. Nothing special, nothing different, nothing eye-opening or eye-popping, save that one incident when he was 12 years old in the temple and was teaching. That was pretty amazing. But aside from that, oh, there are some 
old stories of tradition that say when Jesus was a young boy that he made mud pigeons with his friends and Jesus' pigeons flew away. Strange little stories like that that never made it into the, the Word, the inspired Word of God. Because Jesus was ordinary. And I need you to get your arms around this. This is a tough one. But Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that Jesus emptied himself. And that word emptied in the Greek is neutralized. Kanuo. He neutralized his power. When Jesus was born of Mary on that day in Bethlehem, he was born a human baby. Yes, fully God in nature. Yet Paul said not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. He had no power. He gave it up. Wait a minute, Rick. But Jesus walked on water. And Jesus healed people. And Jesus raised the dead. Yeah. After he received the descending Holy Spirit. So what I believe the Bible teaches is for 30 years, Jesus, though fully God in character, in nature, was fully man in physical form and unable at, those, at that point to do the miracles that he would do in his ministry because he was not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Check it out. Kanuo, he neutralized himself. And so why does the Lord exalt Joshua? That they may know that I am with you, Joshua. Why does the Lord pour His Holy Spirit on His Son, Jesus, who is, in fact, in nature God, so that we would see how it was supposed to work? Because remember, Jesus is also the perfect example of you and me, of how we can live in our lives. Greater things than these, He says, you're going to do. You see me do them. You can do them. Because the things that Jesus did when he walked in the flesh up to the point of the crucifixion, he did by the power of the Holy Spirit upon him. And that is the promise that is given to you and to me as well. The presence of the Spirit in your life means the recognition of the Lord in your life by others that people might see Jesus. If you are Spirit-filled, it is so people will see Jesus. Understand Jesus and be drawn to Jesus and not you and not me. Verse 8. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Now today the Jordan River is a pretty small river. The Skagit has it beat. Go out and take a look at the Skagit River. It's a bigger river than the Jordan is today. In fact, there are places where you could chuck a stone across the Jordan. It's just not that wide. But historically, the Jordan was much bigger. In Jesus' day, in Joshua's day, the Jordan River would have been, by average, about a football field in width. 100 100 yards across. But in flood season, in flood season at that time of year, it overflowed its banks by as much as a mile from one side to the other. So it would be quite huge. It was at this time, during the flood season, that God decided to send the people across. So it was a mile of river that had to be walked across. Look at verse 9. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, Girgashite, Amorite, Jebusite, Come up with any eye you want, the megabytes, and the flashlights, and the parasites, and whatever. There are seven nations here. We talked about the relevance of the seven nations. I'm not going to go back into that today. But maybe you've been attacked by the ites in your life. Maybe you've been attacked by spite, or backbites, or family fights. Or maybe you're just wound too tight. 
But we all have the ites that we do at the battles that we're going to face. What are they? What are your ites? What are your enemies that you are facing in the land before you? Let me make sure you understand this. The ites in our lives are only and always overcome by His might. Not by our own power. Not by might nor by power, Zechariah 4.6, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. If you've got something you're struggling with in your life and you just can't seem to get past it, guess what? It's an ite and you can't overcome it. But His Spirit can. His Spirit has the power to do so. I love that it's a statement, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Because the Lord of hosts indicates a great power. And you Bible students, you understand that a host is not a woman in an apron who's serving up cocktail weenies. A host is an army. And the Lord of hosts is the Lord of armies. And He's the one who says, not by your might or your power, but by my Spirit. We will overcome. I will overcome those things in your life. Go on to verse 11. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then take for yourselves twelve men from each of the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off and the waters which are flowing down from above will stand up in one heap. The priests carrying the ark had to put their feet into a river that's running, rushing, anywhere from 100 feet to a mile wide and only then would the water stop. And this is a completely different baptism than the first one. The first baptism, the Red Sea. God parted it for them. They didn't have to do a single thing. They stood there in awe. Actually, they stood there in fear. The army of Egypt behind them, this sea before them, and they were frightened out of their minds when God parted it for them. They didn't do anything. The Lord opened the water for them. Not this time. This time, they had to step out first. This time they had to plant their feet in the water before God would stop the water and dry it up. The priests had to put themselves into it heart and soul. Literally soul. And the soul of their feet had to be in the water to stop the water. Now this is critical. Because I, I believe more than theology or tradition, or even plain lack of biblical teaching, the primary reason why so many people choose to stand on the banks and not receive the power of the Holy Spirit, the rushing living water of the Spirit, is because, like Israel, the priest, man, what if we walk out in the water and nothing happens? What if I get my feet wet and he doesn't respond? What if I start praying for this and it doesn't happen in my life? What if? What if I look like a fool? What if I really stick my neck out there? It's a risk. It's a risk. To receive the outpouring, the power of the Spirit in your life, yes, it's a risk. But note this, the actual place where the Lord would heap up the waters was in a place called Adam, and Adam was 19 miles upriver. Which meant that God had already stopped the waters before they stepped in. They didn't know that. They couldn't see that. They couldn't possibly have understood it. But God stopped the waters. He's already fulfilling the promise before they take the first step. Why did He do this? Because it's all about faith for the Lord. He wants them to step. He wants us to step. The choice is ours. And we don't have to step into the water. Three, two and a half really tribes of Israel did not step into the water. 
did not go forward. The men did. They went forward to fight. But the women and the children and the flocks and the herds, they all stayed behind on the east side. They never crossed. They didn't want to take that risk. And the choice is ours. We don't have to step in. We don't have to ask. And I'm telling you right now this morning, if you are comfortable where you're at, content to stay where you are in your Christian life, and you don't have that power gift, that filling of the Holy Spirit, but you're happy where you are, God's not going to force you to take another step. He's not going to dump His Spirit on you and say, I told you I want you to have the power. It's up to you. Do you want it? Why does God continue to insist on asking us to step out because of our faith? He wants to grow our faith. Jesus said in John 20, 29, Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. Up around the corner of the river bend, 19 miles north, they didn't see the water heaping up in a pile. All they knew was that God said to step into the water and trust me. 2 Corinthians 4.18 Paul says We look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary and the things which are not seen are eternal. You can't always see upriver. Maybe in our case that's a good thing that we can't always see upriver. There's a little joke in there. You can think that through. To step out. God wants us to step up. He wants us to step in faith. Verse 14. We've got to finish. Almost done here. Verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And when those who carried the Ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the Ark were dipped into the edge of the water for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest... All the days of the harvest, the waters which were flowing down from above, from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarephan, and those which were flowing down toward the Sea of the Arab of the Salt Sea were completely cut off, and so the people crossed opposite Jericho. Now don't miss this. This is so cool. When do the banks of the river Jordan overflow? At the time of the harvest. It's at the harvest time. That's when the river's overflowing. That's when the floodwaters flow. That's when the river rushes and runs at its highest point during the days of the harvest. And my friends, that's exactly what the prophets foretold would happen at harvest time in our world. And that time is now. This is the harvest and the banks are overflowing now at harvest time. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 repeated in Acts 2. It will come about after this. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your men will dream dreams your young men will see visions even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days and Jesus said behold I say to you John 4.35 lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for the harvest already he who reaps and is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life and he who sows and he who reaps they may rejoice together my friends it's harvest time and the river is overflowing the overflowing water the river of the Holy Spirit will you step out will you step in will you step up I when I first began to realize there was more that the power of the Spirit was real I wanted it I wanted it bad I wanted to know the Spirit and to flow with the Spirit. But I didn't know how. And I had no one to teach me. I began to kind of ask around, but I didn't get very good answers. Here's the answer. It's simple. 
You don't have to do a dance. You don't have to chant a chant. You don't have to head into a trance. All you have to do is ask. All you have to do is ask. Jesus said, Luke 11.13, If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And watch this last verse. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. I love that last verse. The priests stood there on solid ground until all the nation until everyone had crossed over will you be one of those priests will you be as Jesus said a priest among those in the royal priesthood who will stand your ground until everyone crosses over until every last person has opportunity to be saved will you refuse to give up will you be filled with the witnessing loving joyful power of the Holy Spirit Will you stand for Jesus in this world day in and day out consistently? Not giving up, not drawing back. Day after day, will you stand for the Lord until He comes? Father, we desire at the Bridge Christian Fellowship to be a church that is not only absolutely intent on teaching the Word, and knowing what your Bible has to teach us. But also, in combination with that, led and filled by your Holy Spirit. To be not a, a church of the Word, or by contrast, a church of the Spirit, but to be a church who worships in spirit and in truth. It's been our desire from day one, Father. And we are learning as we go. And we are trying to understand and grasp your words. That we might follow you and be filled with your Holy Spirit. Father, I know that out of our study this morning, for some there will be questions. I pray your Spirit will continue to teach. And lead them into your word. Especially to the words of Jesus that they might understand fully what you're saying here. But Father, we submit ourselves to you. We give ourselves in trust to you Lord and we do desire to take possession of the land to take possession of everything that you have given us all the spiritual blessings and Lord we commit to you this morning we commit to stand for you until you come Lord Jesus in fact as we pray that would you quietly if you commit to stand for the Lord until he comes would you stand up this morning Father, we stand before you in commitment and in a desire, Lord, to be used by you and empowered by your Spirit to do your work in this world. To have an impact, Father, because this is what you've called us to. This is not our word. We're not the creators of people. And though we love sometimes faultily, we do not love with the kind of love that you have for all mankind. That desire to see every man saved. Holy Spirit, would you empower us with that kind of love? Would you instill in us, before all other fruit, that first fruit, the fruit of love? That we might really care about those who are dying in their sin. Who are hopeless in this world. Father, open our eyes to see the harvest. 
And we pray that we might step into the river of living waters, experiencing the power of your Spirit and utilized as witnesses in the world. Maybe you've never even come to Jesus. Maybe you've never experienced even that first baptism. And, and so you, you like what you hear and your heart is stirred. I invite you to just ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life today. To pray after me, dear Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I believe in my heart that you're resurrected from the dead. And I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. And I ask you to save me and to enter me today, to indwell me with your spirit. And if you've done that in your life, you've you've been baptized, you've entrusted yourself to the Lord, perhaps this morning you're one who's saying, I don't think I've ever had the Holy Spirit come upon me in such a powerful way. I invite you to ask. To ask. To say this morning, Holy Spirit, empower me to do your work. Fill me that I might be used by you. And Father, fill this place with your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.